Well, I want to confess to you again how much I, I love and cherish and treasure the Word of God and that as we continue to study in this little series we've begun on righteousness and relationships and romance that uh, we're not lost in the woods. We have a, a clear moral compass that points us back exactly where we need to be. One of our elders, um, Bill Zimmer, gave me a, a little account that I want to read to you that I think is, is very worthy and at first... Listen may sound a little silly, but by the end of it, I I hope you're as encouraged and blessed as I was. It's called Johnny Lingo's Eight-Cow Wife by Patricia McGreer. She writes, When I sailed to Kiniwata, an island in the Pacific, I took along a notebook. After I got back, it was filled with descriptions of flora and fauna, native customs and costumes. But the only note that still interests me is the one that says, Johnny Lingo gave eight cows to Sarita's father. I don't need to have it in writing. I remember every part of this. And every time I see a woman belittled or her husband by her husband or a wife be withered under her husband's scorn, I want to say to them, you should know why Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for his wife. Johnny Lingo wasn't exactly his name, but that was... Uh, Shinkin, the manager of the guest house of Kiniwata, that's what he called him. But Johnny was mentioned by many of the people and many connections. If I wanted to spend a few days in the neighboring island of uh, Nurabini, let me try that again, Nurabandi, uh, Johnny Lingo could put me up. If I wanted to fish, he could show me where the best biting was. If it was pearls I sought, he would bring me the best ones. And the people of Kiniwata all spoke highly of Johnny Lingo. Yet when they spoke, they smiled, and the smiles were slightly mocking. Get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want, and let him do the bargaining, advised one person. Johnny knows how to make a deal, smiling. Johnny Lingo, a boy seated near, hooted the name with laughter. What goes on, I demanded. Everyone tells me to get in touch with this Johnny Lingo guy, and then breaks up laughing. Let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, one man said, shrugging. Johnny's the brightest, strongest young man on the island, and for his age, he's the richest. But only one thing. Five months ago, at a fall festival, Johnny Johnny Lingo came to Kiniwata and found himself a wife, and he paid her father eight cows. I knew enough about island customs, she writes, to be impressed. Two or three cows would be... Uh, a fair to middling wife and four or five a highly satisfactory one my goodness I said eight cows she must have been the beauty that takes your breath away well she's not ugly he conceded and uh, smiled the man but the kindest could only call her Sarita plain Sam Karu her father was afraid that she'd be left on his hands but then he got eight cows for her isn't that extraordinary it's never been paid before, the one man said. Yet you call Johnny, Johnny's wife plain? I said it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Well, I said, I guess there's just no accounting for love. True enough, agreed the man, and that's why all the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get a special satisfaction from the fact that he's the sharpest trader in the islands, but was bested by Sarito's father, Sarita's father, Sam Carew. But how? 
No one knows exactly how, but everyone wonders. All the cousins were urging Sam to ask for three cows for her and to hold out for four, sure that Johnny would only end up paying one. Johnny came to Sam Karu and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny Lingo. I wanted fish. I wanted pearls. So the next afternoon, I beached my boat at the island where he was staying, and I noticed, as I asked directions to Johnny's house, that his name brought no sly smile to the lips of his fellow islanders. They weren't smiling where he lived. And when I met the slim, serious young man, he welcomed me in with grace into his home. And I was glad from his own, pe- and I was glad from his own people the respect they had, me- they had unmingled with mockery. We sat in his house and talked. And then he asked, You came here from Kiniwata? Yes. They speak of me on that island, he asked. Well, they say there's nothing that I might not want that I can't get from you. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kiniwata. Yes, I know. Do they speak of her there? A little. What do they say, he said. Why, just... um, The question caught me off balance, she writes. They told me you were married at a festival. Nothing more of the curved his curved eyebrows told me that he knew there had to be more. Well, they also say that the marriage settlement was eight cows. I pause, and they wonder why. They ask that. His eyes lighted with pleasure. Everyone in Kiniwata knows about the eight cows. I nodded. And on my island, everyone knows it too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for his wife, Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. It's vanity. He's just proud of himself. And then I saw her. I watched her enter the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still a moment to smile at the young man beside me. She went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes all smelled a pride which no one could deny her the right. I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at me. You admire her, he muttered. She's glorious. But she's not Sarita from Kiniwata, I said. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps she does not look the way she used to look in Kiniwata. Well, she doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by her father. You think eight cows were too many? A smile slid over his lips. No. But how can she be so different than what I heard? And then he said this. Did you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later, when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe even six. How does she feel, the woman who is sold for only one or two cows? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you did this just to make your wife happy, she said. I wanted to make Sarita happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she is different. That's true. Many things can change a woman. 
things that happen inside, things that can happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks herself. In Kenny Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she's worth more than any other woman in the islands. Eight cows. Then you wanted, I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman, he said. But, and she said, I was close to understanding, and he finished my sentence. But, he finished softly, I wanted an eight-cow wife. You know, we don't trade in cows to find women as guys, and women don't talk in terms of how many cows were you paid for in our culture. But we shouldn't look in a belittling fashion at this little incident. This was a man who saw in a woman a treasure beyond worth. This was a man who saw in a woman something inside that blossomed into the outside. This is a woman whose internal beauty, when shepherded, became external beauty. Take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. What we want to find in our study is what it takes for a man to ignite that kind of beauty in a woman and what it takes for a woman to pursue that kind of beauty for her Lord and ultimately for a man. What is your worth, ladies? What will you settle for? Who is it that you're looking for? What standards do you have to set not only for the man you'll choose, but what standards do you have for how he will choose you? What are you using to draw the men around you into attraction to yourself? You know, each passage in the Bible has only one interpretation, but they can have many, many applications. And we've been camping out in Titus 2, and frankly, I've got I to admit, I'm not sure how long we're going to be here. It's going to be a while. And the reason is there's such an attack on who a woman is supposed to be in our culture that we need clarity from the Word of God. And this chapter just absolutely unleashes the mind of God on the sanctity and the glory of a woman like no other passage I'm familiar with. It can have many applications and one interpretation. The application that we're choosing right now is for those of you who are collegians, who are in the 18 to 25, 26-year-old category, who are looking at yourself and you're looking at the mirror and you're looking at the guys and the girls around you to figure out how in the world you're going to sort this thing called dating and marriage out. Well, we're going to try to glean again this morning from Titus 2 some of the principles I think will be encouraging to you, but will be goals that you need to attain, listen, as a result of the gospel in your heart. You can't just make a list and say, this is who I want to be, this is what I want to do, this is the list I read over every morning and I'm going to become that. No, no, no. This isn't something that you do to become. These are results of who you became when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. So ladies, I would admonish you again today, don't begin to study who you need to be before guys, before you study and understand clearly who you ought to be before Christ. If that relationship is not what it ought to be, no other relationship will flow as smoothly as it ought to. And most will end up in disaster. Well, let's jump in. A little bit of review. We've been looking at some qualities of a righteous woman in Titus 2. The first thing we looked at last week, just by way of review, was that this kind of woman has a depth of discipleship. A depth of discipleship. And we noted that that was from the context. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. 
But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Again, let me remind you, sound doctrine, which we usually think is these big doctrinal creeds, is not what Titus has in mind in here. Not what Paul has in mind for Titus here. Sound doctrine is who a man ought to be, who a woman ought to be as a young man and a young woman. Who a man and a woman ought to be as an older man and an older woman and how that mingling should cause the next generation to be powerful and strong in witness for Christ. To speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Namely, in older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to, and this began our list, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. And we studied a few weeks ago, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things to show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The whole context here is older men discipling younger men and older women discipling younger women. In that context, we can see that a woman who is a righteous woman ought to have in her life a depth of discipleship. She ought to have relationships with older women. What do you mean older women? People three or four years older than me? Sure. People ten years older than me? Sure. How about some gray hair, though? How about relationships with moms and women who've lived life faithfully before the Lord and you can just sit in their presence and glean the lessons that they've learned from their obedience and their mistakes? And we learned also that discipleship ultimately is three facets. That you're faithful, available, and teachable, right? You're faithful. You want to pursue it. You're available. You make the time to put yourself in the way of older women and in the way of truth and teachable. You come to older women in the Scriptures saying, Lord, my life is an open book. Use these tools, the Word of God and these older women, to shape and hone me into the woman you want me to be. You have a depth of discipleship. So let me ask you, lady, who are your women? Who are the women in your life? Who are you connected with with a relationship who can speak into your life, into your heart, who have you exposed by vulnerability the insights of your actions and your behavior and your attitudes and said, Lord, use this woman to help shape me? Who are they? And if there's no one, let me admonish you that you're out of the obedient will of God because it's very clear that that's the pattern that God has for us in the church. Let me remind you again that men, we have the same admonition from the Lord to be attached in a discipleship relationship with an older man, correct? So pursue that. A second characteristic we looked at last week was a love of liking. It's a strange little phrase, a love of liking. And the reason it says here in the text, to love your husbands. To love your husbands. Older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands. Back up in verse 4. Encourage them to exhort and treat them. Now, why is it to love their husbands? Excuse me. The reason it's to love here is a little different than a man is called to love a woman. This word is phileo. It means to like him. To have a, a, a genuine concern and care for this person. It's a love that likes. And frankly, guys are one of the more difficult of the two genders to like. Amen? Guys usually amen that. And they're totally silent on that. Amen. 
You've got to learn to like guys. You've got to understand the differences between men and women. Develop godly relationships with worthy men who are going to treat you biblically. Study what it means to love biblically and all the nuances of liking and affection and agape and, and commitment. By the way, a woman, someone asked last week, a woman is not only called to like her husband. We're told as believers to have love for one another, and that includes our husbands, correct? Or your husbands. Number three, we looked at last week. A care for children. A care for children. Same word is used, phileo. It means to care for and to tenderly have affection for children. And we said this is as much a learned art as it is any kind of intuition a woman has. So we suggested that you find an older woman to teach you about children. Babysit as much as possible. And by the way, we included the guys on that. I got an email this week from a guy who said he'd like to babysit for me, and I, I praise the Lord for him. I'm going to use him real soon. Also, to pray that your husband would be a godly father and a godly husband. Begin to think about children now. You know, the time to understand, begin to understand children is not when you have them. It's a little late then. It's way late then. You need to be thinking and studying now. What, are, what does God have in a parenting role for me if the Lord chooses to give me a parenting role? Let up to where we left off last week, and we'll pick it up here. Number four in this little list we've developed of a character of a godly woman, a righteous woman, is this. And it's the same as we had in the man, a cultivation of control. A cultivation of control. That comes from the word sensible. It says, encourage the young women to be, verse 5, sensible. This is sophronos in the Greek. It means to have a sound mind. The word emphasizes thoughtful and even cautious self-control. The idea is that you're disciplined with yourself. You're in control of yourself. It's contemplative self-discipline. It's the same quality, by the way, that's to characterize elders in chapter 1, verse 8, older men in chapter 2, verse 2, and older women by inference in chapter 2, verse 3, and all believers in chapter 2, verse 12. In fact, this is the word that Titus uses. It's his favorite word to characterize a Christian. This is kind of his catch-all. If you say you're sensible, it kind of covers everything else because you do what makes sense within the control of yourself on yourself. How does that specifically relate to women? Let me read you a passage some of you are familiar with. Proverbs 11:22. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. That Hebrew word for discretion is a cousin to the word at least in the Septuagint, is a cousin to the word sensible. She lacks self-control. She lacks discernment. She lacks the ability to think rightly, to think clearly. And frankly, all you need to do is turn on the television and you see a lot of gold rings in swine's snouts, don't you? Women who have all the beauty on the outside but have absolutely no sensibility. Don't be a woman who works so hard at the outer beauty of your, that your heart has no discretion, no discernment, no sensibility. So much of being sensible really is just acting on, on common sense. Obviously, the Scriptures are going to speak into that, but it's acting on common sense. I was thinking about this a lot this week, and I can't resist sharing something with you I came across, so please humor me for a minute. Just recently in the Massachusetts Bar Association, Lawyer's Journal... These quotes were cataloged. Maybe you've seen this. These were questions actually asked of witnesses by lawyers. These are fairly studious people. These were actually entered into the logbooks and responses given by insightful witnesses. 
These are lawyers asking questions on the stand. Okay, you ready? This is an example of not being sensible. Quote, Now, doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, he doesn't know about it until the next morning? Takes a minute, I know. Secondly, the youngest son, you mean the 22-year-old, how old is he? Another one. When you were present, were you present when your picture was taken? Another one. From the doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Doctor, no. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? Doctor, no. So then it's possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. The doctor said, no. How can you be sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting in a, in a jar on my desk. <laughs> But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? I love the doctor's response. It's possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> Another one. Was it you or was it your brother who was killed in the war? Another one. Did he kill you? How about this one? How far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? <laughs> How about this one? You were there until the time you left. Is that true? How many times have you committed suicide? Another one. She had three children, right? Yes. How many were boys? None. Were there any girls? <laughs> you say the stairs went down to the basement. Yes. And these stairs, did they go up also? Mr. Slattery, you went on a rather elaborate honeymoon, didn't you? I went to Europe, sir. No. Uh, was your wife with you? You, you, would, you would hope so. Doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? All of my autopsies were performed on dead people. <laughs> I love this one. All your responses must be oral, okay? What school did you go to? Oral. How about this? Do you recall the time you examined the body? I guess these are all autopsy things. Do you recall the time that you examined the body? The autopsy started around 8.30 p.m. And Mr. Denningham was dead at the time? No. <laughs> he was sitting on the table wondering why I was doing an autopsy on him. <laughs> That's an example of not making sense, of not being sensible. And we laugh at that. But you know what? Some of you are equally as foolish with, uh, with just as obvious things. What does sensibility look like in the woman of God? First of all, it's a woman who controls her passions. She controls her passions. In other words, she has self-control over her impulses, sexual impulses. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Spending. Guys, you want to find out what a woman's like? Check her credit cards out. Ask her on the first date, can I see your statements? You'll know real quick whether that's going to go anywhere or not with this, with this gal. She controls her eating. Or how about she controls talking about marriage with a guy you've only known for a couple of weeks or months. You know, I see so many students get in trouble that way. You get together with this person, you have this euphoric kind of... And then you start talking about marriage. And then you get to know them. And then you think, why was I ever talking about marriage? A woman of God controls her passions... 
You know what, guys? Respect a woman who kind of doesn't show you all the cards. Who you can't get totally figured out. Because she's guarding her heart. Why? Proverbs says, For from it flow the issues, all the springs of life. She's guarding herself. Secondly, she controls her projects. This is sensibility. She controls her projects. She chooses what she's going to do with her time wisely. She finishes what she starts. You can look at what she does and see that that leads into the next. She controls her priorities. She knows what's important, and her schedule and efforts reflect that. If she's going to spend $10,000 a year going to a school, then her, obviously her stewardship of homework is at an apex. This is a woman who knows her projects and her priorities and her passions and controls them. Not perfectly, not without any uh, um, flaws or sin, but she has general control over her life because that control is submitted to the Lord. How are you doing, girls? How are you doing in being sensible? Being a sensible woman. Being a woman whose reputation is that she does what makes sense. She exercises self-control. How are you doing? Well, fifthly, and frankly, we're going to spend the rest of our time here. We won't get any further than this one today. This woman has a passion for purity. She has a passion for purity. It says there in verse 5, Teach the younger women to be... Pure, to be pure. Pure here is hognos. The word means moral innocence, and especially in this context, it refers to sexual purity if you're a single girl and marital faithfulness if you're a married woman. Now, I want us to think about this and really, really open our hearts up um, to the Word of God at this point. Let's, let's kind of unpack this a little bit. What does purity mean? Let's look first of all at purity and thinking. Purity and thinking. How's your thought life, ladies? Do you protect your thinking? Proverbs 4.23, we said it a minute ago. Watch over your heart, that's your thinking. Mission control central of who you are. For from it flow the springs of life, the issues of life. Your life ultimately comes out because you thought about it in your life, in your heart. As a man thinks in his heart, in his heart what? So he is, so is he. Remember that impure deeds always come from impure thoughts. I love what our pastor John says. When a man or a woman falls into sin, they don't fall very far. This has been something that's rehearsed in your mind before. The compromises of mind are always present before the compromises of deed. Are you protecting your heart? We've said it so many times. I'm beginning to be known for this. Do you protect your heart when it comes to entertainment? You go out on a date with a guy and he takes you to a movie that you shouldn't see that doesn't bring honor and glory to God and His values. What do you do? Are you too embarrassed to say, you know what, we need to leave? Or do you just sit there cringing inside? What about the television? When no one's around and the channel changer is in your hand, what do you watch? And you know what? It might not be pornography. It might not be X-rated stuff. But it could be little love stories that don't bring honor and glory to God's values and God's value system. What are you being entertained by? Are you protecting your mind? Are you protecting your thinking? I have to say this because I was down at the Christian bookstore, not ours, another one just recently. Are, Are you reading those novels? 
I don't know what, know what they are. If you go to the, even to the grocery store, there's all these love novels. And I never see men buying those novels. They're aimed at you, ladies. They're aimed to make you discontent with your life so you'll join them in a fantasy life in the pages of that book. Are you controlling your heart? Secondly, let's talk for a minute very candidly about purity and dressing. Purity and dressing. At issue here, girls, is modesty. Being a modest woman. Modesty is one of the most telling parts of a woman's character. In fact, if you let me, I'll be so bold as to say this. You let me watch a woman regularly over the course of a month and see what she wears, and I can tell you a whole lot about her heart. A whole lot. Now, what I want to do for a second is just take you on a little adventure. We did this about two years ago, I think, and we haven't done it since, so I want to take you on an adventure of where the idea of modesty came from. Turn back to Genesis for a moment. Genesis 2. This is critical for you to understand because it, it really underlines and impacts the motive of your heart, gals, in terms of modesty. And frankly, the same thing for you as well, gentlemen. Genesis chapter 2. You know the context there? Genesis 1, God creates uh, the whole world. Genesis 2, He gives further, ex- further explanation about that, particularly on the man and the woman and their task in the garden and what they were to do and what they were supposed to be and how they were supposed to relate and how they were supposed to give dominion over the animals. And at the end of this, this section, the conclusion in the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25, it says this. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Before the fall, there was no shame. There were no clothes. There was no shame. There was no need to have shame. There was no impure motives. There was no impure hearts. There was no sin that could be done or had or thought about. They had no clothes, they were naked, and they weren't ashamed. Walking around in the garden, just as free as they could be. Chapter 3 happens, and they fall. Let me remind you again, we talked about it a few weeks ago with the man, but let me remind you that when you get to Romans chapter 5, it doesn't say the sin of Eve, does it? says the sin of Adam. Yeah, but I thought Eve talked to the, to the serpent. Well, verse 6, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, circle it, with her. Adam's failure in this was that he wasn't leading his wife right there at the point of temptation. He was allowing someone else, an evil influence, to influence his wife. Verse 7, though, what happened? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Are you ready for this? The first effect of the first heart that ever fell into the sin into sin was a self-consciousness that Adam and Eve had for themselves, that they were immodest. You don't think immodesty is at the heart of a sinful heart? You don't think immodesty is critical to God's leading us into repentance? Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
And when the Lord called to the man, he said to him, Where are you? Adam said back, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was, there it is, immodest. I was naked. So I hid myself. Verse 11, Then God said, Who told you that you were naked? Now, answer that with me. Who told them they were naked? Who told them? No one. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then he goes on and pronounces the curses on the three different entities, Adam and Eve and the serpent. What's further? Keep going over here. What did they sew the leaves out of? Sew the, the, the cloth, their, their clothes out of? Leaves, right? Look over to verse 21. And the Lord God made garments, but not of leaves, of skin for Adam and his wife, and here it is, and clothed them. Now let me give you what's underneath. The, what, we're just looking at the surface. What's underneath is, is that God actually clothed them. He covered them with skin. He covered, it's the same word in Hebrew used for atone. He atoned, he covered for their sin by putting new clothes on them. Were they leaves? No, they were garments of what? Skin. So where did that skin come from? A dead animal. First sacrifice right there. God covered their sin. That's why I truly believe when God said, the day you eat, you die, that He fulfilled that promise. Not that they died spiritually. Not that they would die eventually. I think He fulfilled that promise because He said, you should die. This is your punishment. But instead of killing Adam and Eve, He killed an animal, took its skin and clothed and guarded and atoned for their sin. That was the first picture of what Christ would do for us, right? What do you get out of all this? Very simply this. God intends that clothes are for one purpose. You know what they are? To conceal your body. Take a trip out to the mall. The majority of the clothes in our malls today are designed to do what? To reveal your body. Should your body ever be revealed? Yes, in a marriage relationship. Hebrews says the marriage bed is undefiled. God takes great pleasure in a man and a woman who are married, enjoying that intimacy with each other. But to everyone else, it's to be clothed. Ladies, your modesty is at the heart of your holiness. You can measure your holiness by observing your modesty. If you're unashamed, then something's wrong. If you can wear some of the things that, frankly, I've seen some of you gals wear and not be ashamed, something is desperately wrong with your heart. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this. Verse 3. Let not your adornment, women, be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses... But let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. What's he saying there? A mouthful. Be modest. He's not saying don't wear makeup or brush your hair or take a shower, okay? We want you to do those things. 
Those are helpful things. He's not saying don't look nice or take care of yourself. He's just saying don't let what you're noticed for be your externals. Then he gives us a call back to the holy women of the Old Testament who were known. You never see anyone in the Old Testament say, wow, she was known for how she looked except for one lady. Who's that? Esther. And that was done by an evil king who came to, Christ, came to God or not, we don't even know. He was using the wrong standards then. God just used that in Esther with a Ahasuerus to bring himself glory. 1 Timothy 2.9 Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Modest clothing, in other words. Modestly and discreetly. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, does that mean you can't braid your hair or wear gold or pearls or something that costs a lot? No. But just know this. In Paul's context, that was the clothing of a harlot. The question becomes then, how do I know if I'm wearing modest clothes? How do I know if what I'm wearing is modest? Simple. The context of Titus 2 tells you how to know. How do you know? Ask older women. Not any older women. Godly older women. When's the last time that you felt a little self-conscious and asked an older, older lady, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about my, my skirt length? What do you think about this blouse? What do you think about this? And if they say, well, you know, that, that looks a little, little risque to me. Do you say, Psh. You're out of touch. You haven't been to the Gap. You haven't went into the Limited. I mean, there's, I can't even buy anything, this, this what, what you're telling me. Can I tell you something? My wife buys clothes all the time. And she never has trouble finding anything modest. Ever. I have never one time seen my precious Kim dress in a way that I thought was ungodly. And you know what? That's precious to me. How are you dressing, ladies? Proverbs twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Ladies, don't be naive. I think some of you might possibly fall into the category of Proverbs 5 and actually be a temptress and doing it on purpose. Others of you, maybe even worse, are just clueless. Too tight, too high, too low, too this, too that. How do you know? Ask an older woman. How else do you know? Watch the guys watch you. That's fair. What are they attracted to? What are you using to cast out and pick up a guy? Is it externals or is it a heart? We're going to come back to more of that heart in a couple weeks. Please understand that you as ladies are not responsible for some guy's sick, perverted mind. You're just responsible that you would dress in a way that's modest, in a way that conceals your body, not reveals it. Can we go to a third little subpoint there? Purity in acting. Purity in action, in other words. I want to talk for a second about flirting. Can I? I looked up flirting in No Webster's Dictionary and it says this. Flirt. To behave amorously without serious intent. You say, what's amorously? Amorous. Comes from the, the Latin word love, amor. Strongly moved by love and especially sexual love. So to behave 
amoriously, strongly moved with sexual love, without serious intent. That's flirting. That's the definition. Here's another definition. The second one under it. To show superficial, superficial or casual interest or liking. Just superficial. Colon. To act cottishly. Now, C-O-Q-U-E-T-T. It means a woman who endeavors without sincere affection to gain the attention and admiration of men. Is that at all found in your heart, ladies? Where you're trying to win the favor and affection of a man without serious intent. Why? Because you like it. It's nice to be liked. It's nice when they look at me and talk to me. and It's nice when they call me. It's nice, it's nice. Or are you thinking about the reality that God may be testing you and him for a relationship here? Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 5. I can't miss this. In Proverbs 5, we find a flirt. This is the only place in the Bible where you find someone flirting. And guess who she is? She's a harlot. Proverbs chapter 5. This is a woman who knows a man only superficially and casually and makes herself attractive for all the wrong reasons. Proverbs 5, this is Solomon talking to his son. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Really listen to me. Incline your ear to my understanding. If anyone knew what this was like, Solomon did, right? What's his understanding? 700 wives and 300 concubines. He understood this issue. Why? That you may observe discretion. You'll be discerning. You'll be sensible. And that your lips may reserve knowledge. Listen, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. Now stop right there. I find this fascinating. I did a little work on on this word adulteress. You know what the word adulteress literally means in the Hebrew? You're not going to believe this. A strange woman. Someone you don't know. This whole chapter unfolds around a woman using the wrong things to get a man to know her. She's a sweet talker. She can talk really smooth. She can talk to you guys and you just get all enamored with her. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable and she does not know it. She doesn't think beyond the encounter she's having with you. Now then, my sons, listen to me, verse 7, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Guys, if you find a flirt, go the other way. If you find a girl who's a flirt, who's trying to use speech and language and clothes and immodesty to try to attract you, run. Run like Joseph did. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. What happens if she lands you and you actually marry her? You've given your strength to her and she's given you cruelty and your uh, lest verse 10 lest be lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard earned goods go to the house of an alien this is talking about you end up being wooed by her and you have kids with her and then all of your wealth goes to the foolish wife and her foolish children and you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say how have I hated instruction why did I blow it, in other words? And my heart spurned reproof. 
I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. There's discipleship again, men. Putting yourself under an older man who can tell you the kind of woman to be attracted to and the kind of woman to run from. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly of the congregation. It has to do with your reputation, doesn't it? It can ruin your reputation with everyone you know. Verse 15, he gets real specific. He says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. That's talking about enjoying the pleasures of intimacy only with your own wife. Should your springs be dispersed abroad as streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Verse 18, and let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you all the time. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with a strange woman, an adulteress? And embrace the bosom of a foreigner. For the ways of a man, here it is. You want some accountability on this, guys? Here it is. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Are you guarding yourself, men? Women, are you becoming this kind of of gal? Are you becoming the kind of girl who speaks in such a way and dresses in such a way that men are drawn to you for those reasons rather than a gentle and quiet spirit, a godly, sincere heart? God only desires that a woman is free from flirting and teasing. He also desires that she's free from immorality. Let me ask you this, ladies. How far will you go? Can I just ask you that? You go out on the state. This guy makes a play for you. This guy's going to try to go further than the Lord would want. How far will you go? We have said, and we'll say a whole lot more, gentlemen, about your leadership in that of protecting her purity as the highest privilege given to a man to a woman, from a, to a man for a woman. What about you, girls? Can I give you permission to do something? Girls, I want you to write this down, okay? 661... 299. I'm serious. 661-299-4935. That's my home number. If you get in a compromising situation, call me. After you call your dad. Okay? That'd be a good one. You call and say, Rick, here's so-and-so. He'd like to talk to you about what he wants to do with me. (laughs) Guys, we are called... Purity. We're called to holiness. We are called, Ephesians 5, to present these women to God in purity, washing them with the water of the Word. What are you doing? What are your standards, women? What kind of girl are you? My mom used to always tell me, Rick, you know what kind of girls there are? There are girls that do, and there are girls who don't. And make sure you know which kind of girl you're going out with before you go. What kind of girl are you? How do you dress? How do you act? How do you think? Are you a pure woman? Is purity the highest aspiration in your heart when it comes to relating with a man? There's a guy, I've told you guys before. I won't tell you his name because most of you know him. There's a guy who used to date my wife, Kim, before we were married. They dated for a few months. And... He is a dear friend of mine. 
And I had an opportunity a couple years ago to tell him, hey, you know what? I almost said his name. Hey, buddy. Um, thanks for taking care of my wife. You didn't know at that point that you were dating Kim Holland. You were dating Kim Harris. Thanks for taking care of Kim Holland, even though you didn't know who she was going to be. He treasured her purity. He trusted God's wisdom in his relationship with her. He preserved her for me. You know what? Some of you are going out with somebody. Some of you are thinking about going out with someone. They're going to end up being someone else's husband or someone else's wife. Let me ask you in the sincerity of your heart, can you be friends with their spouse based on how you've treated them before they were married to that person? Are you pure, ladies? Let me encourage you also. Last thing. I'm going to be really, really frank with you. Gals, please guard the way you dress always, but will you please watch it at church especially? I'm telling you as a man, okay? Sometimes I walk in this gym and I I look around and I just think, I I can't believe my eyes. That's that's unfathomable, unfathomable to me. That someone would dress like that to come to the house of God to give worship to the Holy One. Please, ladies, please be sensible and be pure. And as you do that, you'll attract the right kind of guy, not the wrong kind. What kind, what kind of guy will you attract if you wear immodest clothes? And then you marry him. And then those clothes don't fit you just like they used to. But they look good on another girl. If he was attracted to you for that reason, what makes you think that he won't be attracted to another for the same reason? If he's attracted to you because of your godliness, that's a lock and key on your heart. He won't look anywhere else from that. That will be drinking from his own cistern. Girls, God has called you to follow men in a relationship, but he's also called you to demonstrate leadership in controlling your passions, in controlling your modesty, in controlling your heart. Are you willing to do that? Let's pray. Father, I feel like we've just skimmed the surface. There's so much more in my heart, so much more in my notes that we could explore on this subject. We started out this morning talking about this precious man who shepherded this woman to be an eight-cow woman. And we kind of laughed at that, Lord, but we know the heart that he was demonstrating. He loved who she was and he loved who she could become. And he shepherded her. I pray for our men that they'll shepherd holiness and purity in the relationships they have with the women in our group. Not even the relationships that are dating or courting or are moving toward marriage, but in their, their siblingship, their friendship, their being brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray for these women, Lord, that here at the, the crossroads of their existence, when they're going to be using different means to attract the men who will someday give them their name, that you protect them. Lord, let them see in a mirror what you see regarding their external beauty and let them see in your word what you want to see in their heart. Thanks for these precious ladies you've given us, Lord. These precious women who you've given us. Help them to be holy and pure, to stand against the world and to please you in all respects. In Jesus' name.